We're continuing to look at the topic of hermeneutics. And we've been going through trying to build a basic foundation of what is hermeneutics and understanding the principles that we need to interpret the Bible accurately. Uh, this morning, we're going to still look at hermeneutics, but we're going to be focusing more on bad hermeneutics, what you should not do when you study the Bible. And so this morning, let's start by looking at rationalism. Rationalism. The basic premise to rationalism is that your reasoning is the ultimate source of what is true. This hermeneutic says that any conclusion regarding the text of Scripture must be confirmed and proven by your reason, whether that's through the use of logic, using history, or science. If the text says something that cannot be proven, then the text must be wrong. There must be a problem with the text. The text could be in error. That is to say that the human author, being sinful and imperfect, made a mistake, and they wrote something that wasn't factually true. And thus, the rationalist would say, that's perfectly normal, that's perfectly acceptable, we expect it to have error. That would be a denial of inerrancy. Or, if they find that the text describes a narrative that they can't prove, you know, like a miracle or a resurrection, they would say that that is not a mistake, that is a myth, it's a legend, it's not true. That's rationalism. It's not true because we can't prove it. This comes from the Age of Enlightenment, where they elevated human reason to the ultimate arbiter of what is true. One of the um, philosophers of that time period, John Locke, considered to be the father of modern liberalism, said, nothing that is contrary to and inconsistent with clear and self-evident dictates of reason has a right to be urged or assented to as a matter of faith. And here, faith is defined as that, w that which you can prove. And you shouldn't believe anything that cannot be proven according to your reason and according to your logic. With this hermeneutic, how do you accept any of the miracles of Jesus? How do you accept the resurrection of Lazarus? How do you accept, accept Jesus walking on water? How do you accept that God became incarnate? And the most common place for this type of hermeneutic in the Bible would be Genesis 1. Genesis 1 is where we get the creation account, and rationalism demands that Genesis 1 be proven by science, or Genesis 1 must be wrong. And if they can't prove Genesis 1, then we need to rewrite it, interpret it differently, make it mean something it doesn't say, so it will be consistent with science. You could call this scientism. There's an author that writes on this. He writes from a supposedly Christian perspective. His name is Hugh Ross. In his book, Navigating Genesis, here's what he said. Genesis chapters 1 through 11 present a history of the universe, earth life, and earthly humanity with the help of many remarkable advances in astronomy, physics, geophysics, chemistry, paleontology, biochemistry, and anthropology. The words of the first 11 chapters can be subjected point by point to rigorous investigation. They can be verified or refuted with greater precision and to a greater depth than previous generations might have imagined possible. Anything about that stand out to you? Yeah, notice the words of the first 11 chapters can be verified or refuted. Do Christians go to the Bible to refute it? Is that how we're supposed to interact with the text? Mr. Ross seems to think that he, his scientific studies are sufficient to tell God that he's wrong. He elevates his scientific studies 
to the same level as divine revelation. Notice in this next quote how he describes revelation. He writes again, How could the two books of Revelation from the same source, that is the book of nature and the Bible, tell anything other than the same message? Is there a book of nature? No. They will always match up when we come to understand them more fully and interpret them responsibly. What I get from nature is equal to what I find in Scripture. And the two must match. My scientific studies must conclude the same thing that Genesis 1 concludes. But now you might say, well, that sounds good. It sounds good until you remember he's there to refute it. And when his scientific studies don't match, then he's going to change Genesis 1 to make it match. Mr. Ross makes his scientific understanding the ultimate arbiter of what is true and not true in the Bible. In his book, Why the Universe is the Way It Is, look at what he says. He says, Many scientists and others write off Christianity as a non-rational belief system because of the widely publicized notion that the Bible dates the origin of the universe and earth at just thousands rather than billions of years. Why do Christians, Bible-believing Christians, date the earth between six to 10,000 years? Does anyone know? Right, so we have the genealogies. From the time of Adam till today, we can date that roughly to six to 10,000 years. But if Adam was the very first person created and he was created in the six days of creation, the earth cannot be billions of years old. Everybody following me? It cannot be. And Mr. Ross says, well, people look at that and say, well, Christianity is non-rational. It doesn't fit our rational minds. It doesn't make sense to us. His problem with that view is merely that it's not rational in his mind. To be fair, Mr. Ross claims that he can defend his position from Scripture. But I would say the only way he can defend his position in Scripture is if he twists the text to get it to fit what he wants, to fit his scientific studies. Let me give you an example. Now remember, he argues that creation happened over millions and billions of years. Grab your Bible. I just want you to see a couple of verses. We're not going to read all of them. Genesis 1, Genesis 1, verse 5. We're going to read verse 5, and then we're just going to hit some high points in some other verses. Mr. Ross doesn't get his conclusions from Genesis 1. Look at Genesis 1, verse 5. And God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and there was evening, and there was morning one day. Genesis 1, verse 8. Look at the very end of the verse. A second day. Genesis 1, verse 13. A third day. Genesis 1, verse 19. A fourth day. Genesis 1, 23, a fifth day. Genesis 1, verse 31, a sixth day. So we can rightly conclude from reading Scripture that the earth was created over billions and billions of years, right? Yeah, the plain reading of this text does not result in you coming up with the idea that the earth is billions of years old. The only way you can come to that conclusion is if you use modern science as your hermeneutic. Is if you read scientific conclusions back into the text. And this is where Mr. Ross attempts to use the Bible to defend his position. And he points to the Hebrew word for day, the Hebrew word yom. Here's what he says. The word yom possesses four distinct literal definitions a portion of daylight hours, all of the daylight hours, a 24-hour period, or a long 
but finite time period. He actually cites a really good lexicon for the source. This is actually true. Yom has a semantic range. And it can mean various things, but the meaning of it is dependent upon its context. There are four possible definitions for Yom. So which one of these four does Mr. Ross pick? Number four. Here's what he says. Yom refers to a long but finite time period. Context here would reject his view, but why does Mr. Ross choose that definition? Out of the four, he does it primarily because that's what science says. It fits his scientific conclusion. And he believes that if you're going to interpret the Bible, it has to fit with science. Here's what he said. To interpret the Bible literally is not enough. One must also interpret it with internal as well as external consistency. External consistency is it must be consistent with science. And if it goes against what science says, we have to change the meaning of the text to fit our scientific conclusions. But is Mr. Ross's definition, it might be consistent with science, is it consistent with the rest of Genesis 1? Does it fit the context? You've already given the answer. No. Here's his definition. There's the four. It could mean a portion of daylight hours, all the daylight hours, a 24-hour period, or a long but finite time period. Here's Genesis 1, verse 5. He defines what he means by day. There was evening and there was morning. Those are the parts of a day. One day has an evening, one day also has a morning. And when you have morning and evening, that's one day. One 24-hour time period. His definition contradicts just one verse. You don't even have to leave verse 5 before there's a contradiction. And then we have the little phrase at the end, one day. You know, this isn't the only place in Scripture this little phrase is used. It's used over 30 times in Scripture. You know how many times it means in a finite, long period of time? 30 times it's used, and every single time it refers to a 24-hour period of time. It never refers to anything else. And in fact, every time this Hebrew word shows up with a numeral next to it, a number next to it, it always, always, every time and without exception, it always refers to a 24-hour period of time and never refers to anything other than that. So how in the world does Mr. Ross come to the conclusion that it means a long, finite period of time? He didn't get it from Scripture. He does it by exalting his scientific conclusions over the text. But he can't say it's a 24-hour period of time because then he would have to say his, his science is wrong. Science is not an appropriate tool for evaluating creation and the veracity of creation. Why? Because creation is a supernatural act. Science says nothing about the supernatural. It has no ability to speak about the supernatural. It can only talk about the natural. I think John MacArthur said this. Uh, science trying to prove the resurrection of Lazarus. If there was a scientist back in that day, they could examine the body of Lazarus when he was raised. They'd never come out and figure out how he was actually raised. Yeah, 
what does it say about your theology proper if God can only do what you can imagine? He's, a, he's established reason and logic and science as God itself, as the final standard of what is true, and everything else must be subjected to that. And that's what he says. He, if the earth is not billions of years old, well, excuse me, he says the earth is billions of years old and therefore the creation narrative doesn't make sense. And because the creation narrative doesn't make sense to him, it must be rejected or altered or changed. Last quote from Mr. Ross. The idea that the beginning of the universe, earth and life on earth, dates back only a few thousand years, dismisses at best all the sciences and infuriates scientists. Some who, would, who might be open to considering the good news of redemption in Christ never give the biblical message a chance because of its seeming nonsense about creation. Is that right soteriology? Is that what we understand about why people don't come to Christ? People don't come to Christ because of the creation narrative? People don't come to Christ because, they're, because it's not rational? No, people don't come to Christ because they hate God, they hate Christ, they hate the light, they love their sin, and they don't want Christ. But notice this last part. Because of its seeming nonsense about creation. Well, it's not like we had to read something into the text to get to our six-day creation, did we? It was pretty obvious. And so he looks at biblical revelation, and it doesn't line up with the scientific conclusion, and his conclusion is, that's nonsense. And it's nonsense that infuriates scientists. And since it's nonsense, we need to get rid of it, we need to change it, we need to alter it, and tell God he's wrong. Because it doesn't line up with our reason. Now, is it wrong to use reason and logic in hermeneutics? No. God has given you a mind, he's given you the ability to think, and he expects you to think and to engage your mind. That's why you find these repeated commands, renew your mind, and the focus on your thought life. And in fact, proper hermeneutics requires that you use your mind. You have to think logically to do good hermeneutics. The problem occurs when you take your reasoning and your logic and your, your thoughts, and you elevate them, and you make them a, an authority over Scripture. And you use your logic to contradict what God has said. Uh, J.I. Packer Reason's part is to act as the servant of the written word, seeking dependency on the Spirit to interpret Scripture scripturally, to correlate its teaching and to discern its application to all parts of life. We may not look to reason to tell us whether Scripture is right in what it says. Reason is not in any case competent to pass such a judgment. Instead, we must look to Scripture to tell us whether reason is right in what it thinks and on the subject with which Scripture deals. He's got it exactly backwards. Mr. Ross has placed his reason as the authority over Scripture. He needs to reverse that and put Scripture as his authority over his reason. Any questions on rationalism? Yes, sir. I haven't heard a rationalist respond to that, but I would assume they would say that's foolishness. Or they would ignore it. Yeah, that's good. Any other questions on rationalism? Let's go to the other side of the spectrum. Mysticism. Uh, last week we talked about a postmodern hermeneutic where the text is whatever I think it is and I have my own truth. This one, mysticism, you might say, is the experiential hermeneutic. It doesn't matter what the text says. 
Doesn't matter what I think about it. What matters is how the text makes me feel. Does it give you an experience of being closer to God? Uh, Dr. Brad Clausen said, While the rational approach gives unquestioned allegiance to human reason, the mystical approach, or irrationalism, gives unquestioned allegiance to experience and intuition. This hermeneutic doesn't actually focus on the grammar. It doesn't focus on what the words actually mean. It doesn't matter what they actually mean. It doesn't seek to find out what the author wanted to communicate. Instead, it focuses solely on how the reader feels, what sensations occur while reading in that small inner voice that's supposed to speak to you while reading. The mystic doesn't concern himself with actually engaging in hermeneutics and figuring out what the Bible means. And they would reject as unspiritual and antithetical to faith and life and the Spirit any demand for discernment or textual evidence or right interpretation of the text. There's a very popular form of this. It comes out of Roman Catholicism, and it's actually growing in Protestant circles. It's called Lectio Divina. You heard of this? Lectio Divina, or divine reading. It was first created by the Benedictine monks as a spiritual discipline. It's actually encouraged in the Catholic Catechism. Christian prayer tries above all to meditate on the mysteries of Christ as in Lectio Divina or the Rosary. It's also a growing practice among quote-unquote Protestant circles. Um, You guys will know this group. Bethel University. Lectio Divina, a simple four-step prayer to enrich your quiet time. They're borrowing from the Catholics. Lectio Divina views Scripture as the living word rather than merely the written word. It's living in the sense that every time you go back to the verse, it'll give you something new. And God is constantly giving you fresh insights every day. Constantly providing you new revelation, new ideas, new meaning. Now you know why Bethel likes it. How do you do Lectio Divina? What are you supposed to do in this process? Well, first you read the passage. That makes sense. Bethel, this is an article in their blog post for their university. In this first step, read through your selected passage of Scripture, take your time, make sure you're understanding and absorbing the words in front of you. Is there a phrase or a verse that really stands out to you? Take note of it. Don't read the passage and focus on the verse that the passage really wants you to focus on. Don't try to find the main point of the passage and let that be the thing you get from it. No, no. What subjectively hits you about this passage? What word or phrase or verse really stands out to you and just makes you feel better? That's what you focus on. This is a Catholic blog. This next one. This brief reading's aim is to help you go deeper into the Scripture's sense and to predispose yourself to listen to God's voice. And they're actually talking about God's voice. They're not talking about learning something new in the text. The goal is to read and reread slowly until specific words or phrases really resonate with you. And the Spirit starts communing with you in some mystical sense. And as I said, the goal here is not to understand what the author meant. The goal here is not to understand what the words mean. There's, no, there's never an instruction to look at context. There's never an instruction on how to find historical context. There's no instruction on determining what the words mean. None of that. They don't care. How does it affect you? And they make it sound really spiritual. Now, once you get this spiritual feeling, 
and you've got specific words that have made you feel differently, you go to step two. Step two, meditate or reflect. Same idea. Now you go back and reread the passage. This time you reread it with the intention of reflecting or meditating on that section that really resonated with you. Here's what Bethel said. The second time through, let the words interact with your thoughts, feelings, and your life circumstances, past, present, and future. Now see, when a Christian looks at this, they might say, well, that sounds actually pretty good. Kind of. It sounds like they're trying to do application here. But what are they applying? Their feelings. And whatever weird thought came up when they were reading. And then they're supposed to meditate on it. And think about it. And notice, apply it to your life circumstances. That is, put yourself in the text. Make the text about you not about whatever the author was writing about. Dr. Clausen has a TMS blog article called The Bible and Lectio Divina, a helpful tool or dangerous practice. Here's what he said. The reader is encouraged to insert himself directly into the text itself, becoming, as it were, the writer of the text, its recipient or the character about which the words were written. Experiencing the text through imagination and visualization is key. It's all about your experience. It's not about what the text says. It's all about having an experience. And whatever you come up with in this experience, whatever ideas pop into your head from your feelings, that is God speaking to you. And once you've heard from God, now you need to respond. That's the third step. This is where you take whatever thoughts or feelings that you had, and you go back to God, and you pray about them, and you worship God for it. And you take those insights that he gave you, and you pray about them, and you, you figure out how you can apply them in your life. And you begin to worship God for it, uh, Bethel again. You might, you might be moved to praise, adoration, or giving thanks. You might respond to pray for someone using the scripture at hand. Is there a word or a phrase that the Spirit brought your attention to on your first read-through? Cons consider responding to it. Take a word or phrase, take it out of context. However it affects you, impacts you, use it. No concern for what the author meant. All of this is subjective. It's all about how you feel. What stood out to you after merely reading the passage? You determine what the text means by subjectively examining your feelings as you read it. And when you're done, you go to the fourth step, resting. Now that you've had your, you're in God's presence, now you need to rest there. Having received this fresh insight from God, you now need to enjoy it. Dr. Clausen again, this is kind of a long quote, I'm sorry, but he says, as he, that would be the reader, enjoys this union with God, the reader lets go of previous misunderstandings or previous pre-understandings, convictions and behaviors, which he now recognizes as contrary to the living and active word of God. He embraces the new perspective and rests in a state of peace and contentment. He concludes by pondering how to live in the newness of life this experience has produced. So take your subjective feelings that you got from the text and use them to rewrite your pre-understandings and what you've been told before and develop a new theology based off these subjective feelings. <laughs> Sounds exhausting. Sounds dangerous, right? Just rewrite everything you know based off some mystical feeling you had when you read the text. Now you understand why Bethel has the theology it has. This new understanding wasn't derived from Scripture. 
but they're now going to use it to determine all the decisions in their life. They're now going to rewrite their understanding according to it. And then if you go to them and say, well, you know, you guys really need to study the Bible and actually find out what the text means, you know what they'll tell you? No, that's not right. That's cold, lifeless religion. We want a fresh living experience with God. Yeah, everybody, has a, everybody responds to their emotions a little bit differently, and some people give their emotions more credence than they should, and I think a person who does that would be more likely to fall into this. All right, so this is Roman Catholic version of meditation, prayer, and Scripture study. This is what Benedictine monks do for hours. This is what they encourage the laity to do for hours, and this is a growing practice in quote-unquote Protestant circles. There is a place for meditation, prayer, and application of Scripture. But that meditation, prayer, and application all stem from a right understanding of what the original author intended when he wrote the text. It doesn't come from my subjective feelings about the text. And I certainly wouldn't want to apply my subjective feelings because, you know, the heart is deceitfully wicked. If you don't know what the text means, then you have not heard from God. God's message is in the text. It's in the meaning of the text. All right, any questions on mysticism? Yes. Yeah, in some cases that's true, yes. Um, yeah, we, we do depend on illumination, right? But illumination is God helping our minds understand what the text says. Illumination is not God speaking to us subjectively through our feelings. All right, historicism. This views the text of Scripture as nothing more than a historical artifact. The, the Bible is useful only to the extent that it can provide information on ancient practices, cultures, customs, and religion. And according to this view, Scripture holds no more authority than, you know, Philo, Shakespeare, or any other ancient writer. And because it's just a historical document, then it should be studied as such. And when you come to the text, you should come to the text like you would go to reading Josephus. And you should bring to the text the same kind of presuppositions and beliefs about the text that you do with any other author. What are some of those presuppositions? I couldn't find any authors to give me these presuppositions, so when you just think about other texts that you go to, what presuppositions do you go with? Well, first of all, you go with the presupposition that it's written only by a human author. That's a pretty big one. You come to the text of the Bible, and you come to it with the assumption that the Bible was just written by people. It's not written by God. It's not inspired. It's not God's Word. Therefore, it has no authority. But if, if it's only written by people, what is true about it? It has errors. The, bite, the author can make factual errors. He can say things that are wrong. And when you come to just a normal text, you kind of expect it. When you read historians, you kind of expect somewhere they're going to get something wrong. And so it's good to go and find another source to verify what you're looking at. But if that's what you assume about the Bible, that it's a historical fact, then you have to throw out not only inspiration, but you have to throw out inerrancy. And you have to embrace the idea that there's errors in the Bible. Because after all, we all would agree there's no perfect human author. My last presupposition, you have to assume that the author is biased. 
And those biases can alter how the author conveys historical events. Those biases can affect what perception they give of certain events. And they do that by just leaving some things out or emphasizing other things. If you want a good example of that, um, before I was a Christian, I read a lot of politics. Read a book but written by a Republican on one issue, and then go read a book on the same issue by a Democrat. And by the time you get to the end of the both, depending on where you fall in that spectrum, you might get to the end of both and realize they're talking about the same thing, but they're both saying two different, very different things, because each of them is emphasizing what they want and what makes their point look good while ignoring the rest of it. That's a bias. And so there you would say, I need to get multiple sources to overcome the biases. Because I can't just trust one source. If you go to the Bible as it's written as any other book, then you would have to say that the author is biased. And you can't trust just the Bible. You have to go to another source. These are some of the assumptions. I'm sure there's more assumptions they can come up with. These are the ones my feeble mind can come up with. But I want you to hear what this results in. Else K. Holt, is an, she's an associate professor of biblical studies, and I can't pronounce this name, University of Aarhus, A-A-R-H-U-S, in Denmark. Here's what she says about it. This is really small text, I'm sorry. In academia... We cannot, under any circumstances, talk about God's word, what God has said or done, or what are his characteristics. In academia, we must limit ourselves to talking about the Bible or other traditions, dogmatic traditions, what they say about God. Every time we talk about the authority of the Bible, we honestly should add that this is not an authority that comes from God. The authority of the Bible is something assigned to these texts by humans. Should we then stop talking about God with a capital G in the field of biblical studies? I think it would be a, at least a good exercise in academic self-discipline. That's the consequence of saying this is just a book like every other book. You can't talk about God with a capital G. You can't say it has any authority. It's just any other book. This is a woman who's teaching young minds about God. She's teaching theology. Why would you want to teach biblical studies if that's what you're going to say about it? Let's go to the next one. Letterism. Letterism. This is often used as a straw man argument, especially against those of us who hold to a six-day creation. You've probably had someone use this against you as a straw man. Or if you embrace premillennialism or a rapture, you've had this used against you. You are said to be embracing a form of letterism. That is, you take the Bible too literally. You don't recognize the existence of figures of speech, idioms, metaphors, and scripture. You interpret everything in the most literal way possible. You might say a wooden translation. I've actually had a family member do this to me. They quoted Matthew 5, verse 29. But if your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Well, Frank, see, so you got both your eyes there. 
Or what about the next verse? And if your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Frank, I see you got both your hands still. Are you saying you're perfect? You're going to cut your hand off if it makes you sin? That's what the text says, isn't it? That's the plain reading of the text. Do you see how it's ignoring what the text is actually meaning? Jesus here is not talking about self-mutilation. This is hyperbole. And he's saying there's nothing worth holding on to if it's going to lead you into sin. And if you know the rest of your Bible, you know your hands and your eyeballs don't lead you into sin. But that's how letterism would work. It would ignore the reality that that's a hyperbole. It would ignore the reality that hyperbole exists, and it would just take everything in a very wooden, literalistic way. Now, that's kind of a silly example. There's some others that have a little bit more consequence. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. Anyone know a very over-literal interpretation of this text? Roman Catholicism, ignoring the fact that this is not talking about cannibalism. Roman Catholicism will say that in the Eucharist, in the Lord's table, the bread becomes the literal body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ. And that you are to literally eat his flesh and drink his blood. They have some fancy way of sidestepping that problem. I don't remember how they do it, but they have a way to sidestep that. But this is an over-literal reading of the text. If you go through the rest of John 6, we don't have time to do that, but if you go through the rest of John 6, what you will find out is eating and drinking is related to believing. Mormon theology. Mormon theology has used over-literalism to come to some false understandings of God. Joseph Smith said that God had a physical body. Now, according to Mormon theology, uh, that's necessary because of how they believe Jesus came into the world. Joseph Smith said, The Father has a body of flesh and bones, as tangible as man's, the Son also. But the Holy Ghost has not a body of flesh and bones, but is a personage of spirit. Were it not so, the Holy Ghost could not dwell in us. So the Father, according to Joseph Smith, has a body. A physical body. How did he come to that conclusion? Letterism. Verses like this. Psalm 17. Verse 7, marvelously show your loving kindness, O Savior, of those who take refuge at your right hand from, who's, from those who rise up against them. See, God has hands. He also has arms. Psalm 89, verse 21, with whom my hand will be established, my arm also will strengthen him. And God has eyes and eyelids. Psalm 11, verse 4, Yahweh is in his holy temple, Yahweh's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold, his eyelids test the sons of men. You see how an over-literal interpretation of these passages result in a wrong view of who God is? You have to ignore clear statements in Scripture. 1 Timothy 6, verse 16, whom no man has seen or can see. You have to ignore John 4, verse 21, God is spirit. You have to ignore Jesus' own words when he says, for, the spirit, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones. But you take an over-literal reading of a few verses, and you can come up with some really, really bad theology. So what do we mean when we talk about a literal understanding of the text? What we mean by that is simply this. We recognize, we understand the text according to the normal laws of language and grammar. 
we recognize the existence of idioms, metaphors, symbols, and figures of speech. Figures of speech are tools authors use to help express what they want to express and to make it more clear and more vivid for the person who's hearing or listening or reading. Authors don't use a figure of speech to create confusion. There are some books where people say, well, it's so symbolic, it's so figurative that it's impossible to understand. Then there was no point in writing it if it cannot be understood. If someone comes to you and says, man, my car costs me an arm and a leg, do you really think they're missing limbs? No, it's a figure of speech. You understand what, what they're meaning. The context and the plain meaning of the words reveals not only that it's a figure of speech, but it also gives you its meaning, and it helps you understand. When I say, my car costs me an arm and a leg, what am I saying? It costs a lot. It's expensive. The reason why people go to the Bible and they have trouble with figures of speech and idioms is because they're not used to those, that language, and they're not used to that culture. The statement, an arm and a leg, in our culture has a very clear meaning. You know what it means. But do you know the figures of speech from ancient Greece? No, so sometimes those can be confusing. But that doesn't mean we should ignore them completely. Okay, confessionalism. Confessionalism. This describes reading our system of theology into the text. The interpreter comes to the text with a preconceived notion about what the text does and does not mean. They don't try to get the meaning from the text. They come to the text and they say, I know what this text says, and they just read it into the text and force it onto the text. Kind of like Hugh Ross with science. The goal of the interpretation here is not to tell you the meaning of the text. The goal of the interpretation is merely to prove what they already believe. And you see this a lot in reform circles. I'm part of some groups on Facebook that do reform theology. And if you have a few hours that you would like to not get back, join some of those discussions. And usually those discussions begin with someone throwing a theological hand grenade. And because in these groups you have, you have Presbyterians who believe in baby baptism, and you have Baptists who don't. And so somebody will ask a question about a specific verse about baptism, because they want to see everyone argue. But invariably, what you will find is that somebody will answer the question about a text of Scripture, and they will answer it by doing one thing, quoting their confession or their creed. The Westminster Confession of Faith says, and then, bloop, quote it. The Bible means whatever this confession says. The London Baptist Confession of Faith says, Doom. The creed or the confession has become the standard of what the biblical text means. And if someone comes back and says, whoa, 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 that's not what the Bible says, oh, you're denying the confession? You're denying the Christian faith? Yes, sir. Good point. Systematic theology comes from biblical exegesis, and we start with the Bible first, and we work our way out, and we find everything the Bible says about a particular category, and we build our understanding from there. And then we formulate that. Systematic theology, I don't go to, let's say, Biblical Doctrine by John MacArthur. I don't go to that book and say, what, is this, what does this text mean? And they say, well, John MacArthur said this text means this, right? Systematic theology is just taking everything we've learned from the text of Scripture and organizing it so we can understand it. And I'll, I'll, I'll say this now. We're not opposed to confessions and creeds. There's no problem with confessions and creeds. 
This church has a confession. Did you know that? We don't call it a confession, but it's called what we teach. It's a summation of what we believe. Just like the London Baptist Confession, just like the Westminster Confession, just like the Belgic Confession. Yes, sir. Yeah, a lot of those confessions and creeds were written by Puritans. They would be appalled. And even if you read the Confession and the Creed, a lot of those good creeds will tell you Scripture is the ultimate authority. And now people are taking those creeds and using those as the defining, what defines what the text means. But confessionalism is not just using confessions and creeds. Sometimes people do this with their favorite preacher. So you come to church, you've got your 15-pound MacArthur Study Bible, and you sit down, and the pastor gets up, and he says, open your Bibles to this passage. And the pastor starts going through and teaching what this text means. Hey, pastor, John MacArthur says... And they reject what the pastor's teaching because John MacArthur says otherwise. Is John MacArthur the standard of what's in the Bible? Does John MacArthur determine what is and is not true? No. Is there something wrong with having a MacArthur study Bible? Absolutely not. It's a good resource. But you cannot reject biblical teaching simply because John MacArthur said something. You reject a teaching because you have determined that's not what the Bible says. And there are areas that we, as, a, as the, the church, we would disagree with John MacArthur. They're not big areas, but we would disagree. Like deaconesses in 1 Timothy 3. Or here's another one. Eschatology. People will come in and say, well, I don't agree with premillennialism. You guys are premillennial dispensationalists. I don't like that. And they'll give us whatever their view is. And you ask them, well, why do you hold that view? Well, and then you get a list. R.C. Sproul, Vody Bauckham, James White, Jeff Durbin, and, you know, whoever else. They hold this position. They said this. Okay, well, what in the Bible leads you to that conclusion? R.C. Sproul said, but what does the Bible say? They don't have an answer. But they dogmatically hold to the view, not because they're convinced that's what Scripture teaches. They dogmatically hold to the view because that's what their favorite pastor says. Yeah, pastorism. Yeah, we, we can give it a new name. Pastorism, right? Often this dogmatic insistence will persist even after you show them the text of Scripture. And they'll go so far as to manipulate the text to try to justify their position. And by the way, this isn't just people who disagree with premillennialism. I've seen premillennialists do this and use John MacArthur as the argument. So this isn't just, you know, ah-mills and post-mills. This is around the board. Is there anything wrong with you're a new believer, you were saved under MacArthur, you were saved under Durbin, and you hold that view because that's the only view you know? Is there anything wrong with that? No. You're a new Christian, you're still learning, you're still growing, it's perfectly okay. But if you know that you don't have a biblical foundation and you don't understand what the Bible says about it, and the only reason you hold that position is because this guy holds it, you need to hold that position with a very loose grip until you are convinced that's what Scripture teaches. Because you walk into another church and they have a different eschatological view and you're going to go and tell those elders, you guys are wrong on the basis of what this guy over here said, that's not going to work. 
And the Lord certainly isn't going to be pleased with that. J.I. Packer, the practical implication of this position is that the reason why a Christian should believe a thing is not that he sees for himself what the Bible says, that the Bible says it, though it may, nor that his reason approves it, it may or may not, but that the church or his favorite confession or theologian teaches it. I believe this only because this confession, this pastor, this theologian says it, and I don't know anything about what the Bible says about it. That's confessionalism. I think genuine believers can be deceived by all of these. I think you can be deceived by these not only from the side of listening to someone engaging in it, you can be deceived by, by in falling into it. And I would imagine that everyone in this room at some point has fallen into at least one of these at one point in time or another, myself included. So that's why we're going through them, because these, these can be put in a way that's very deceptive and it can be very confusing. He said, the challenge is, what do you do when you're presented with, with the truth? Do you change your position? Do you adjust? Or do you just dogmatically hold on to whatever you were believing before? Yes. Yeah, we all, we all get the benefit in the modern world of having things like systematic theologies and really good pastors and preachers that we can listen to from all over the world. And they give us something of a foundation. But at some point, you have to Stop relying on standing on their shoulders, and you have to get into the text and figure it out for yourself and be, be convicted that that is what the Bible teaches. Yeah, it, so if, if I had someone who was, they held to an eschatological view, they couldn't support it from Scripture, and they were only holding that view because this person said so. Um, I think John MacArthur had a comment on this that was really helpful. He said, guys, people believe what they believe because someone they loved and trusted led them there. And you're not going to beat them out of that position, and you're not going to argue them out of that position. You have to love them out of it. And so, if we're talking about something secondary like eschatology, be loving, be kind. You want to be loving, kind no matter what, but and just be patient with them and keep coming back to what the Scripture says and reminding them this is what the Scripture says and just keep going back to the text. If it's something a little bit more serious, like you know heresy, um, you need to be a little bit more insistent um, up front rather than give them time. We were all new believers at one point and we all had misunderstandings at one point and we didn't want someone to come over and hit us real hard over the head with the Bible and you know knock us out with it. So treat them as you wanted to be treated. All right, it's a little over time. Let me pray and we'll be done. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you uh, for this opportunity that we have to come together to fellowship, to speak about the Word of God, to speak about hermeneutics. And we just ask that you would help each of us to be aware of these bad hermeneutics, that we would rightly divide the Word of God, that we would handle it accurately and correctly in a way that is pleasing, glorifying to you, and that you would help us as we interact with others who have misconceptions or misunderstandings about the text or about how to interpret the text, that we would be loving and kind and patient with them, and that we would show them Christ and how we interact with them. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.